Welcome to the Emotioneering Podcast with me, Melissa Curran, the founder and CEO of the Modern Mind Group. We are emotioneering human performance, not engineering it. In season one, we talked about emotioneering the modern mindset and really about those people skills and the expression and the communication. In season two that we're in now, we're going to have topics center around everything to do with emotioneering business results. And that's going to cover creating great places to work, increasing profits, human capital, the people, getting record-breaking results, and world-class employee engagement. I'm going to be interviewing guests that I know are absolute experts in this area, and will be able to share their knowledge, share their learnings on the journey with you and myself. And I'm really looking forward to getting in to all things emotioneering with them. Remember to subscribe to YouTube, to the Facebook page, to Instagram, LinkedIn. And of course, you can go to the website, modernmindgroup.co.uk, and you'll get our monthly newsletter there. Enjoy the show. I can't believe that I am actually about to interview the man himself, Mark Drager, who I met on Clubhouse, just randomly went into his room. We do hard things and found him as the host in there. And we really connected. Mark Drager is the founder and CEO of Phantom Media, which has been running for over 15 years. Almost, actually, it's going to be that on the 6th of December, right? Um, but it, what, what's amazing is that he's now transitioned now to be um, a brand strategist, a consultant with that. But over those 15 years, he is exactly who we need on this podcast to talk to us about emotioneering business results and all of those things that come with people leadership and the challenges that it brings. So first of all, Mark, just absolutely welcome. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited to be here because as you said, yes, we met on Clubhouse. And for those who who know about Clubhouse from listening to your podcast, you know, imagine closing your eyes and then having like one or two hour conversations with people every single day, but not seeing them. And now we get to, I get to see you. I know. It's even better. It's like how animated we are, right? Hopefully we can <laughs> use some of this, this video content too. So it, it's absolutely brilliant to have you here. And I mean, over those 15 years, I, I mean... Tell us a little bit of the backstory. So I know, I know you. We'll be here all day if you go for the full fifteen. But kind of, you know, a little bit more about you, who you are, you know, what you kind of stand for, and and maybe how Phantom Media um sort of started, really. Yeah, sure. So I mean, I I think the real pivotal moment for me, and it goes really far back. Uh, when I was in my final year of high school, and so I'm Canadian, and so like America and Canada, we have high school. And when when you are looking to finish, you have to apply to college or university. You have to decide what you're going to do next. And for for all of my life, uh, I wanted to be an engineer and an architect. And and even today, there's a little ping inside me that I'm not an that I'm not an architect because I love space and I love environment and I love light and I love all of that stuff. But that's what I wanted to do. And so all of my course selection, everything was like, I, I have this plan. I've got it figured out. And then I hit a course, uh, uh, OAC, we call it grade 13 here, OAC chemistry. I could not wrap my mind around this. And uh, looking back, I realized that I was just such a fixed mindset kid that it never occurred to me that if it didn't come easily to me, if it didn't come naturally to me, I thought, I, I can't do this. And so in that moment, in, in those few months of failing, for the first time and 
and wanting to drop a course and not wanting to be there and hating every minute and getting like 13% on a test. And just for a kid who, who for the most part was able to just kind of breeze through things, this made me question everything. And I thought, if I can't do this, surely I can't go on to university and, and become a, an engineer and a civil engineer and then become an architect and then do all of these things. And so I went to film school instead, because quite honestly, it seemed like a more fun and easier thing to do. And so that moment really changed my life pretty significantly because I, I went to film school and then from graduating there, I worked in television and uh, for a little bit. And then I, I went into sales and then I worked at a franchise and I kind of every year or two, like moved from thing to thing to thing uh, until 2006. And, and it's going to sound young because I was, um, but at 23 years old, my wife and I uh, were just newly married. We had just had my first daughter who was a week old, and I decided that I was going to quit my $45,000 a year job to start uh, my own company, which became Phantom Media. And so uh, with not knowing very much, with um, having overly <laughs> overly high uh, and ambitions and also uh, overconfident, perhaps, I struck out on my own to start this company that became Phantom Media, which um, had its own chapters and its own ups and downs. But what, what kind of pings me a little bit in my story is that it's so clear to me that this big pivotal moment in my life in terms of career direction and, and everything that I've done comes back to, hey, at one point I was so afraid that I couldn't figure out chemistry, like, like a, a math course kind of thing of all things, and it completely shifted my whole life. Interesting. I mean, this is the emotioneering podcast. Uh, so I've got to go there, right? Fear is a reaction. Courage is a decision and, and confidence is an outcome. And and, and often we can find, like you said, you know, to go the, the easy route, you, you chose that way. But then actually with the entrepreneurship, you you actually dived into your courage, right? You went, whoo, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do this. I'm going to get over this. I'm going to go out there and be an entrepreneur because you knew what you knew. Right. But then you took that courage. Well, step. OK, so you're I mean, you're an entrepreneur. When you took that 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 journey, was it was it motivated by courage or is it perhaps that us entrepreneurs foolishly believe that we can just do it better? Mm, interesting. So for me, I I was definitely courageous. I feel like I didn't know where the next step was going to be. And I felt that I had a purpose that was bigger than where I was. That's what I felt like. So so I don't know, like maybe what about, you know, you, you had your daughter. Was there potentially thoughts like that at that moment? So, so I'm not, I'm not going to overplay this, how unglamorous this was. Uh, for a number of years, I'd been playing with this idea of how can I run my own thing. For some reason in my head, my grandfather ran his own business that he started in 1950. You know, he was an immigrant from Germany. He moved to Canada. He started a business in 1950. My mom, when I was growing up, she ran a very small uh, business as well. And so in my mind, it was just like starting a business is a thing that you do. And I love control and I wanted to do it, but, but here's why I'm not going to over glamorize it. I literally turned to my wife and I said, I, I, I'm right now working crazy hours for this company and I'm earning 45 grand a year. And I'm just, I, I don't see any career path. I don't see any growth and I'm not sure where I would take it. But if I just did for like a whole bunch of people, what I do for this one company, we are going to make so much money. <laughs> and that was my pitch. My pitch was, my pitch was, like if I just work just as hard as I'm working now for a bunch of people, we are going to make so much money. Um, and it didn't turn out that way, but, <laughs> but that's what 23-year-old uh, Mark thought. 
<laughs> that's interesting I'm, I'm laughing along with you because it's so true right it's like well if I just work as hard as I am now and I do what I'm doing then of course I'm going to have clients and and I'll of course the the revenue will come from that of course it will <laughs> until you realize actually you're working double the time <laughs> like and you've got at first that maybe similar money or less and then you're yeah. wondering when that's going to turn, right? Well, and I didn't learn the difference between gross profit and net profit at the time. And I didn't, I didn't understand how how expenses can ramp up and they're a lot harder to, you know, expenses grow very, very quickly, but it's a lot harder to cut them down. And um, just there was a whole bunch of stuff that that I learned the, the hard way, let's say. Uh, well, and now you are the host of the We Do Hard Things uh, podcast. So, you know, I, I to go from that, and the journey that you you've been on to to where you are today. Let's let's go. Let's dig into your leadership because that's what we're talking about. Kind of emotioneering those business business results. Um, from what I see and when I'm talking to experts and my time in the in the field as a performance consultant, it's really when you start to build that team that things start to kind of change. You know, you have to adapt your style slightly. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about, well, let's, let's set a backstory first, kind of how many people have you had in your team, kind of, you know, your, your recruitment over the years of that kind of 15 years? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of things that, that I did quite well over that time. Um, and so, I mean, there was, a, there was a point where each time we would onboard someone and when you're scaling a company, when you're growing a company, yes, you may, you may hit a point where you're replacing staff, but at first you're hiring for brand new roles. And so uh, early on, I realized that the, that the first person I hired in any given role typically, you know, for the most part, didn't work out because I didn't really understand what I was looking for, didn't really understand how they would click, how it would fit. And, and so I got better at not burning the first person that I put into a role. Uh, but I, I took a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, there was a time where, where it was like, oh, this person's been here four years, this person's been here five years, this person's been here six years, this person's been here seven years, and we had really high retention. Um, and that was a good thing. It helped. It helped with um, with with our clients and the team and everybody understanding the systems and processes without a lot of turnover. It helped um, us continue to level up and get better and better and better because they were hungry to do so. Uh, and and it helped uh, really the team kind of run itself because I brought on. I mean, one of my principles is to always hire people that are better than you at that given task. And so as an entrepreneur, we're, we need to be generalists. We need to be you know, five or six out of 10 on 10 different things. But when you have the opportunity to bring in someone who's, who's a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 at one thing, that really helps your business. It really helps your delivery. It really helps your systems and your processes and what you can do. And so I brought in all these people and uh, I'm quite proud of uh, in, in that time, the way we were able to build a team and scale. And now um, what I'm not so proud of is, is, um, me not realizing that I'm not a really good people leader. I, I had to learn that the hard way. Um, I am an entrepreneur who, who can figure, you give me a challenge and I will probably figure out how to solve that challenge. And I didn't realize at the time that other people aren't wired that way. You know? And so I wanted a lot of freedom. And so I gave my team a ton of freedom. And people really struggled when, when ultimately they would turn to me and say, Mark, I, I don't even know what the expectations are. I don't even have a job. I don't even have a job description. I don't know what what I what the priorities are. So like 
So there are certain things I did as a really small team when we were in scramble scale up mode. And it's just like, let's make this happen. Let's go from, let's go from, you know, 200,000 revenue to a million revenue. And we did that over two or three years. We went from a core team of four people up to about 11 in, in that time. And, and we were really clicking and we were really good, but I, the, the company and the team outgrew my skill set and I didn't realize it and I didn't invest. And so it led to a whole bunch of problems. But to answer your question, at our at our peak, we were at 24 staff and a little over two million revenue. So um, and making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> Do you know what, though, Mark, you're saying that the thing is, I'm, I'm looking at you here and I've got to know you quite a little bit over kind of clubhouse, the interactions that we've had. And I can imagine that your team absolutely loved to work for you. Like you said, though, we're looking for kind of that scorecard or that benchmark. They were on the pitch with you, but they just didn't know the score. That's all it was. It was like they were there. They were in the trenches, but they just wanted to know what they needed to do to maybe win or to have some of those kind of KPIs, like you were talking about the goal setting or the expectations. And it's right. And and just to say kind of um, to set the scene is what we see in in on on um in the business field and, and with the emotioneering blueprint that I use, either we've got people that are, are really focused on the well-being and the cultural side and then the performance focus and the kind of those expectations, those things aren't there, or they go really hard on the performance and they, you know, beat them with a stick. You know, there's a lot of companies out there, <clears throat> and nameless, um, that, that do this. <laughs> And they forget about the culture and the well-being. So you're right. It is about finding that balance. What I love is that you've, you are humble enough and really just honest and authentic enough to say, hey, you know what? I reflected like I've learned from this. So first of all, tell me about your tell me about your first employee. Um, who was that? And how did that go down? Oh, my goodness. My first employee. So I started my company uh, at the end of 2006. Um, and uh, my first employee was uh, a really um, nice woman. Um, gosh, that's such a generic term, a nice woman. Uh, I think of her as a lovely girl because she was like 19 years old, just graduated film school from the same school I went to. And uh, I brought her on as a production assistant in the world of produ- uh, video and creative and, and what we have these terms called PA. And so she's not an executive assistant. She's her, her her job was to like edit one day if it needs to be editing or to carry a light or to set up something. It's just like anything related to like even just some PAs just stand there and watch a parking spot to make sure no one parks there. Like that's the type of role it is. And so Stephanie uh, came on. I didn't really know what to do with her. I didn't really know how to leverage her. I was not a good manager, I'm going to admit. And I, I think it was like a minimum wage job. And uh, and so she was with me for nine months and uh, made a bunch of mistakes. I made a bunch of mistakes along the way. But really what happened with with me and my journey was there was this little thing called the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. You might remember that. Yeah. Um, and uh, we were at we were at around 200,000 revenue at the time, a few years in. And uh, all of our clients were corporate clients and they all stopped doing work. And so there was a five month period, four or five month period or something like that, where it was like very little coming in, no work, um, nothing to do. And so ultimately I had to let her go. But um, but that was my first jump into hiring. And um, and looking back, it, it's all very um 
it's all very like high school feeling to me. You know, you know, do you know those life moments where you look back and it just things feel like a high school or a college moment? Um, that's how the early days for my company feel for me. Well, I mean, after 15 years, let's give you credit, Mark. It probably does feel like that. It's like you're looking back on some like previous life, but there were lessons from that, right? I mean, what did what did that moment? And I must, I, I'm listening to you, and you know, a lot of people have been through this journey as leaders. Even in 2020, we know that that, that a lot of that had to happen. What did, what did that really teach you at that moment? And how did you know? How did that feel? Well, it was my first hire, and it was my first fire. I mean, like. You know, the, the the day that I made the decision to let her go was like four, like it was like a Thursday and um, I was in a different province and but I had made the decision. And so I had to sit on that for like four days um, before I kind of sat down with her and said, this is the decision I made on the Monday morning. Um, and so that was a real challenge and a stretch for me because it's nobody takes pleasure in that. But when you have to like this many years later, I'm, I'm much more confident and, and, and comfortable with having that type of business decision. But, um, but I, I certainly learned that. Um, I learned that you can't, you know, the, the trap that we all fall into is the hope that we're going to hire someone and they're going to solve all our problems for us. And they won't. Um, my hope is that they would work as hard uh, or as dedicated as we will. And, and frankly, us entrepreneurs pour so much energy and so much time into that. That's an, it's an unrealistic expectation to expect your staff to work as hard, to care, to be the visionary that you are because it comes naturally to you, um, to operate when there's no systems or no processes just because you're comfortable doing so. Like, those are all things that, I mean, I've been reminded more than just that first time, but certainly looking back, um, I learned I learned a lot of uh, good lessons. And um, the other thing upon reflection is it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, nine months, um, minimum wage. Everything felt super heavy. It felt like a super big deal at the time. It felt like it was life and death. And and none of that stuff is true. You know, it was just a really, um, you know, the stakes were actually quite low and I was able to work through it. And again, she was a, she was a really uh, great woman who um, I hope learned something along the way, but, but um, at the very least she saw me when I was new. Yeah. Yeah. And it helped you and it helped you definitely, you know, kick those, those things off to, to that point as well. And, and it's lovely to hear you talk about that. And I can see, obviously the podcast listeners can't see it, but I can see the smile on your face and the kind of, you know, the sincerity that you're talking with there and to take you back to that moment. So thank you for sharing that. And well, for- I will say if you, if you spoke to Stephanie, she might think <laughs> she might see it totally different. Like I was some kind of like controlling, <laughs> angry monster. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm smiling now upon reflection, but um, you're very kind. But but when you said the two types of company, like the heartfelt company who then doesn't have the performance or the performance based company, you know, I have a habit of grinding people down. So, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to shy away from that. Like, you know, there's a difference between you being on this side of the camera and you being on my team. And when you're on my team, my expectations are very high. I'm very direct. And uh, and in the past, I've, I've 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 had to be careful not to, again, grind people down. Yeah, and I, I I I hear that, but also because you're working on projects that are worth like thousands, millions, you know, of pounds that 
you've got client expectations that are on you to, to deliver the work, to deliver the work on time. You know, those projects have to turn over. You also have to then get a great feedback and result. So it's all it's it's project management. It's all pivotal, isn't it? To so there, there is high pressure in 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 those circumstances. But again, the fact that you've been able to reflect on that and you can be honest about it now and the things that you've learned, I I think is incredible. And people can definitely learn from this. There are people that are people people, and then there's people there's there. And I, I see you as as a people. A people people like I see you as a people person I'm saying people hell of a lot here um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I see you as this person. I, I you're, you're right it's just uh, once you become the leader once you're in that in that role and you you have um you know expectations from the clients expectations from your team expectations of yourself that's where things start to really become a bit of a pressure cooker um in in what is going on so I mean, what would you say is, would you, I mean, there might be a few, but if you had to, if you maybe could go back and there was one of the biggest team challenges that you had, what would, you, what would it be? Um, so there was a time in 2016 where I made the decision that I wanted to um, broaden our offerings within, within the agency. And so up until that point, we were very, very focused on video. We started as a video production company. And for those who aren't in the world of video, I mean, in 2006, like YouTube was was a brand new thing. There was no social media. Facebook didn't have video. Like we're talking about shooting stuff on tape. That's how early it was. Um, but but certainly the industry came to us, right? Like like video was a hot thing in 2009, 10, 12, 13. And so we continued to grow and grow and grow. But in 2016, I saw a commoditization within our industry. I saw large agencies coming down channel and starting to nip at our heels. I saw little tiny players and one-offs um, picking stuff up. I saw, there was a time where no, no one, everyone wanted a video and no one knew who to turn to. But by 2016, everyone had someone they could turn to. And so it was harder and harder and harder to try and get in front of those conversations because people stopped going to the internet and just Googling video company. And they started going like, oh, I have a friend, go talk to Fred. And so it was cutting us out of, of uh, like it was, it was a huge risk to our business. And so I started to broaden our offerings to focus more on other areas within marketing so we could become a more uh, full service firm. Now, the advice I was given at the time was, hey, you have this team and these systems and these processes and this brand within Phantom Media. You're known for this thing. Go ahead and sell that off or, or keep, it, keep it pure and start this other thing beside it. And I was like, no, you know, like it's just it works so well if I do it all together. If I if I hold on to what I have and I gain what I want to gain, it helps strengthen not only our value proposition, but, but it, it makes everything better in the end. Um, and the advice, like the quote that rings in my head was your team will feel orphaned. And I said, no, I can bring them with me. I couldn't bring them with me. Um, it was extremely hard. It, you know, it, it, three or four years of me trying to grow one team while holding on to something else, me having split focus, um, having to spread investments. So, you know, across these, these different business lines and ultimately the advice I was given of like, Hey, keep this what you have pure, even if it's at high risk, um, or even sell it off. So that way the team doesn't feel like they're without a leader, or without vision, or even second class was the greatest advice in the world. And yet um, I, I didn't take it. I thought that I could, I could make this work. And 
uh, in the end, none of it, none of it worked. And so my team did feel orphaned. They, everything was split. The investments on both sides of the business was very hard to make. It did help us strengthen our value prop, but we struggled to deliver on that value prop because we were spread so thin. Um, and, and ultimately it, it, it eroded, uh, the very company that, that I spent so long to build. And what you're talking about is is the segmentation, right? Is this this split of the kind of um, the the work and and what you were doing, and trying to to look over those two two things? Did you have any sort of you know anyone else like a COO or anybody else that was kind of like, hey, Mark, I can head this up this bit, you know, anything like that? Well, um, I mean, that's one of the smartest things I did do was um, you know. I don't know if, if, if the audience is familiar with the book uh, Rocket Fuel or Traction by Gino Wickman, yeah. but uh, he has this principle where there's a visionary and there's an integrator, right? And the visionaries are really good at doing visionary stuff and moving really quick and being excited and connecting dots. And integrators are that more like COO. They're the person who, who, who puts the plan in motion. They manage the team. They manage the finances. They keep the visionary from changing things all the time. Uh, ultimately, I... I I went, I went it alone with my team, but in 2018, at the very end, uh, actually it would be early 2019, um, I did ask one of my team members to become my COO, to become that kind of integrator role. And it certainly uh, helped me share the burden and, um, and keep things, um, keep things from um, being too scattered. But I, you know, uh, my, my, my COO, Louis, huge, huge heart, but I kind of, plucked him out of out of um, being a, a more of a, a he was a video editor so I plucked him out of this very technical role and then made him the leader of the organization by moving him up like two or three levels so his superiors became his direct reports wow and we're a small team um, we're all grown-ups we're all adults uh, I saw in him skills and abilities and um, and a heart that I thought, could work quite well. Um, and again, it's one of these big, bold, visionary moves like, hey, we're going to pivot the company. Hey, I can hold on to stuff. Hey, I can take this guy and make him the COO when he doesn't really know much about the operation side of the business. And and I'm going to give him time and I'm going to give him grace and I'm going to allow him to make mistakes. I underestimated <laughs> the ripple effect from the team on on that move, from the lack of grace they would give him, from how, how much they would just, again, like, you know, every little slip up, every mistake, they would just hammer him on. Um, and so, uh, Louis is still with me today. He's still my integrator. We're stronger because of it. Um, uh, these, these three years later, but, um, wasn't, wasn't great from a culture or team move either. Uh, yeah. And you know what, Mark, that happens, that happens in, in every business when someone is promoted within the team, but then also, like you said, well, you know, now his superiors were now his direct reports. Like that's like another level of, of, of culture shift. Right. And that kind of change and, and people like, again, it's, it's this kind of, and I, we talk about it, it's the emotioneering podcast. It's the, the fear of the change and they're not sure what's coming. And, and, and those things, then people start to act out. There's ego, there's finger pointing, all this stuff that happens. And it happens in every business. It's just how that's navigated. And it sounds like, you know, yes, there were choppy waters, but you know, like you said, Louis there, he's doing the job and, and that you've moved through that. But what you've just shared will definitely give so much value to the audience that are listening that may be at that point in their business where they're about to do that or to bring in somebody or even someone from the outside. Everyone's like, who's this guy? You know what I yeah. mean? 
and and because it's going to come there's going to be conflict it's the um it's the forming um storming norming performing model have you ever have you are you familiar with that i have not that? heard of that but i like that rhyme yeah check check it out um because whenever you change one person in a team it doesn't matter who they are you change the dynamic it they it's forming again and then it's storming again. Um, and I know that from my, my time in, in call centers, actually, because the turnover of staff was so high. Um, it was like a, a factory, you know, one in, one out. And you were always going through this forming, storming model. So I, I learned quite quickly to navigate those kind of challenges um, in the team. But there's a lot of businesses out there right now that are going through the same challenge like you just talked about, not on maybe the, the big scale and the, the bold move that you made, uh, at the same time, they, you know, they, they, it is something that happens and, and people can be better at it and, and they can, you know, improve their, their, you know, improve their retention if they, they catch it quick. So people don't quit. Like when they're like, I don't want them to be my boss. And then they, yeah. They're off. And, and, um, and also what they can do is they, they, the performance doesn't suffer as a result if they get ahead of that. Right. Um, so, so, I mean, if, if you could sort of maybe give the people in the audience that might be at that point in the business or something yeah. that, that, in, that are listening right now, what are the, what is kind of two pieces of advice that you would give them right now? if that is what is currently happening from your perspective. Sure. So, so one thing that I've come to really embrace and actually just be able to get over is for so many years, I felt very mom and pop in my business. Uh, and I felt very messy. I felt like systems should be tighter. Things should happen more on time. Everything just felt messy and mom and pop. And yet you look out at other businesses and it just seems like they got their stuff together. And now that I'm older and we're many more years into social media, I've realized <laughs> that it's just the same as going to like Instagram, right? You go to Instagram and everybody looks so amazing all the time. And you're like, how can they be so amazing? And I feel so inadequate or like, like I don't have enough time or enough resources or enough budget or there's these things I want to do. And yet I, I don't have the, the right people or like all you feel like is you're missing something, but everyone else has it. That's small business. Like, like that's not only small business. That's big business, too, because over the last number of years, all of the large corporations are trying to do more and more and more with less and less and less. And so that's just business. And I used to think that I wasn't doing it right. And now I'm like, oh, that's that's just the game that we've chosen to play. And everyone feels that way. So if you are feeling that way at any point, just know it's normal. You're not missing anything. It's it's this. This is what you signed up for. This is your job. So I, I would say that's first. And then second, um, you know, the idea that that you can move really fast and be really profitable if it's just you. But that's not a very fun game to play for a long time. And you can't really build anything uh, of significance, in my opinion, if you're really, really small and it's just kind of you. And so at a certain point, you have to realize that um, that you need those people, like you need the right people um, and you need to make the right investments. And sometimes that means that you are not going to make as much or you're not going to um, or, or, you know, there's a season of, of a year or two years where you have to make an extra investments of your time, of your energy, uh, of your profits or whatever it might be. Um, those were some of the mistakes that I had made, though, was was. Um, I had good people, but I wasn't focused on culture, vision, or, or really clicking them together. And there were certain times where we had a lot of profits. And it's not that I pulled it out of the company to, to enrich myself so much, but I would just, I didn't invest them. I always invested in growth. Wow. I didn't invest in what I had. 
Um, and uh, that's really important, right? You can go out and get that new thing. You got to maintain that thing. You can go out and hire that new team member. You have to maintain your current team members, right? You can go out and invest in new marketing schemes and all of this stuff to try and bring in new clients. But what is that going to do to your delivery processes and how much is that going to stretch your team? You know, you can invest in new equipment, but do you have the ability to actually push that through and, and make that happen if you're, you know, a manufacturer or whatever it is. And so I realize now looking back that I was so focused on all of those, like, let's add, let's add, let's add, uh, because that's my nature. And I didn't invest in the people who can be like, let's maintain, let's maintain, let's maintain. And, and that's a mistake that I'm hoping I don't make again. Brilliant lessons from there. So then what I'm going to just pull out and just pull out from this conversation is number one, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That your quote, you know, what you were saying was true from the heart and it absolutely fits that quote. And then secondly, what you've talked about is what I call the leaky bucket. We're focused on what's going in and what we're not focused on. It's all these holes that is just, you know, leaving water all over the place. And actually, you know, we can patch it up to an extent, but actually, could we have those processes, those systems, the people that are going to catch it for us and and to be able to, like you said, invest in invest in improvements um, in, in the in-house improvement, isn't it? It's like DIY. You can keep buying a new sofa, but eventually if you don't do nothing to the roof, it's going to come off. Um, so, yeah. Well, can I, can I share one more lesson that I've recently uh, come across? Yeah. And this is upon reflection again, and this has to do with team and what have you. But I've always felt like if, if I didn't know it, if I didn't understand it, if I couldn't do it. Um, and, and that's just not, that's not just me, but that's the team I currently have. Um, then I feel like, like, um, we're, we, how to explain this. If, I feel like that if I couldn't do it, if I couldn't have the person on my team right now, that person, you know, like Bill, if I don't have Bill on my team, then, then we're missing something. And I realized that our job as leaders is actually just to curate. And, I, I learned this lesson from people like Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga or other artists. Because if you watch how they work, they don't write every song. They don't produce every song. They don't record every song. They, they don't, they don't um, design every outfit. They don't design the stage show. They don't, like, they don't do any of that stuff. But what they do is surround themselves with people who, who you know, I say, help Gaga be the best Gaga possible. And what they are doing is simply curating based off of their emotions, based off of their taste, based off of what they think is right at the given moment. And so as leaders, our job is to curate the right people at the right time. And by doing so and, and choosing who you bring on and how you bring them on and, and what part they fit, that, that's, just, that's just it. You know, that's, that's our job. Our job is to use our our strategies, our beliefs, our learnings, our lessons, um, our tastes, um, our values, what makes us us. And all we're doing is just curating, you know, the right people at the right moment for the right products or the right services for whatever kind of feels right or strategic to you. And um, that's helped me get over the, the feeling of, you know, not having the right people or the right whatever it might be. That's amazing because you're so right. It's like the right people for the right role, but also allow them to, you know, to, to work together. It's like, um, you know, it's like a, a it's like a Swiss watch. <laughs> you know, they're like that thing will keep going if, if it's got the right parts, the right people that are curating or working in their own in their own role realm of genius. And, and something you reminded me there. I love that, by the way. Gaga, it, it was it was brilliant. And, and she's one of my favorites, absolute all time favorites. 
you may you reminded me of something one of the first things that I ever heard you say on Clubhouse was here we you gotta be worried (laughs) (laughs) my eyebrows are raised because I'm like I've talked a lot of smack on Clubhouse what did I say (laughs) I think people called it smack house at one point no but um, I agree no what you said was that stays with me is who not how and and you you and I have got an engineer's mindset like you figure things out I figure things out we do hard things like I'm older like most of the things you say Mark I'm like hell yes like I will I agree and I I find it it really resonates with me but I I am the oh well I'll just do it (laughs) person and that does again it doesn't help you curate a team right can you can you talk a little bit into that for for the listeners of course. Now, I will say that 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 term, um, I don't know if it was invented by, but certainly coined by Dan Sullivan Amazing. and Benjamin Hardy, uh, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, who is um, who's who's an author, and uh, I think he's I, I think he's a psychologist of workplace environments or something. But I had him on the podcast on the We Do Hard Things podcast and dug into some of his books. But but he wrote he wrote a book on it called Who Not How and. Huh? Um, it's interesting to me because the basic premise is so often we think, how can we get this done? You know, as 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 entrepreneurs, as small business owners, whatever we might be, it's like, how do I make this happen? And I am such a hardcore how person. This is why my my previous statement of like of trying to explain like if I can't do it, you know, then like do do we have what we need? It's it's literally this lesson you just said, which is um, I think in terms of how. Like, how will I do this? How will my team do it? How can we make this happen? How can we learn it? How can we develop the skill sets? How, 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 how? But if you shift your thinking to who, you know, who do I need? Who, you know, who has these experiences? Who has access to the network I want to be a part of or the group I want to be a part of? Who can help me um, move quicker or avoid hard lessons or whatever it is? there's a value exchange there, right? So rather than you take the time and the, make the mistakes and waste the money and do all of those things to learn how to do it yourself, you simply go find out who can help you achieve it or accomplish it, plug into them, pay what you need to pay to do so, whether that's through partnership or investment or consulting fees or whatever, or hiring the person or whatever it is. And suddenly, um, and suddenly everything is better because you are buying access to someone else's skill sets. And this was actually my strategy when, in 2016 when I started to pivot the company is I went out and started hiring people who had had these experiences. And I was like, I was amazed. I, was, I, turned, I turned to my friends and I was like, we are literally buying experience. Like, like my agency has zero experience, but I hired someone who had, who had 15 years of marketing experience with a huge portfolio. And suddenly our, our company now, just like overnight, we just, we just accessed all of that stuff. And so I started going out and trying to find these who's, trying to find these people because you bring them in and it instantly unlocks within within your network, within your company, whatever it might be. It just gives you everything that they have, know, and are capable of, you buy. And um, and I still struggle with that because for those of us who are uh, doers and we're how people and we want to figure out how, um, it's cheaper, you know, it's it's cheaper for me in theory to learn how to build a deck or a patio and go do that than it is to hire someone who's a professional. But the exchange is time, resources, focus, 
making mistakes, having yourself be embarrassed by it not being very good or what have you. And so we have to figure out, those of us who, who always jump on, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we do it? We have to figure out how to get comfortable with that investment that seems very large to move to the who, to find that who for you. But that is one of the steps in growth, in scalability, in creating a better team, all of that stuff. I love that. I lo- I'm actually going to quote you on that. Find the who for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> That is so good. That is so good. Find the who for you. It's it's <laughs> it's it's such a simple thing to think about. But you're right. When you are the how, and especially when you're bootstrapping a business at the beginning, and you're like, right, well, I can do all this stuff, and and you have that kind of um, you're the subject matter expert, you're the expertise, and then you figure out and you keep adding strings to your bow. But you're right. In order to have an orchestra. Um, you've got to go out and get all the other pieces. Right. I love that analogy. That's that's like a perfect analogy. You know, you're you're like you want to be uh, cello number one and number two and make sure that, <laughs> it's like uh, I, I need to move to uh, percussion or something. It's like oh, I can just learn how to drum a beat. It's like, no, just if, if you want to have the orchestra and you want the impact and you want the size and the scale and and, and the experience and all of that stuff, you need every single person <laughs> to be in the seat and you need the leader sitting there waving their silly stick. Unless you're like Dave Grohl and you can just do the <laughs> drums and the guitar and the lyrics and song. It's all good if you're Dave Grohl. <laughs> if you're out there, Dave, if you want to come on the podcast, you know, you can you can even team up with me and Mark. It would be great. Yeah, yeah. he um, did hard things. He broke his leg and then went off and got a cast on and then showed back up and finished the set and, uh, and then did the yeah. rest of the tour from a giant throne. He actually had to be taken off the stage because he didn't even want to leave. After the fact, he is like, like what? It's bonkers. But yeah, no, I know. I know we're joking on that. But no, let's bring it back to seriousness. It oh, is. Oh, sorry. It is. is this a serious podcast? No, 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 no. But I, <laughs> it's really, ah, ha, ha, that's, oh, it's made me giggle so much. <laughs> I think the listeners can hear the fact we spent a lot of time on Clubhouse together. <laughs> <laughs> or whether we're just that that energy and that vibration mark that could just uh do we could probably make this like a, an all-night show but let's let's uh you know <laughs> continue with the key value so um ah, <laughs> uh, i don't know whether i'm gonna stop laughing now <laughs> i've also got these pictures of dave Grohl in my head <laughs> rolling around, <laughs> rolling around. <laughs> do you know a funny story about dave Grohl? i once saw the food fighters um in, in the Reading Festival in the UK, which is like big, like, you know, big rock festival, yep. indie festival. Yeah, Pulp, Pulp is one of my favorite groups. And uh, I think they played, I think they closed it in like 2011 or something. Yeah, they, again, an amazing band. Um, and they were there. And I just remember saying to my brother, like, if if he sweats on me, I will not wash, <laughs> which is just absolutely <laughs> disgusting. I wasn't close enough. I nearly got crushed. Um, so, so that didn't occur. So I can, so I can I show you. One- I have one of those stories. Um, now, this is pre-COVID, of course, and we're talking, but um, uh, my friend Evan Carmichael took me to Tony Robbins' uh, Unleash the Power Within in New Jersey in 2018. And uh, because Evan is connected with his team, he got this special seating arrangement for us where we were sitting in the front row um, amongst like you know movie stars and Olympic athletes who've won gold medals and all this cool stuff. But um, a fun experience, but Tony's on stage and he's about five feet feet away from me so so about maybe two meters he's two meters away from me on stage just rocking it and of course he wants fourteen thousand people in the stadium to get every single feeling and every single moment and so he's like sweating and he's jumping and he's and when he's talking he's spitting so every time you turn to us evan and i would be like wiping stuff off our face and we're like we loved it though we're like i'm not complaining at all trust me (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that I'm like saying to my brother in some other world, like, you know, like oh, if Dave Roll ever sweats for me and that you're actually there having Tony Robbins sweat. Good on me. Oh, dude, that is... <laughs> now, if, if Tony ever hears this, and I, I, I mean, he, he can't get embarrassed from it, but it's awesome. It's awesome. Just no, it, it is awesome. Um, it, I, I agree. Like, but that, that what a priceless experience. There's there's women out there that if you'd bottled it, I think would pay millions for for his sweat anyway. So uh, totally, not just women, men as well. <laughs> probably so. Yeah, very true. Oh, Mark, where are we going? I think you are the guest that has made me laugh and enjoy this the most out of every guest like absolutely brilliant thank you so much ah do you know what laughter is good for the soul it absolutely is so look you know we're, we're coming up to sort of towards the sort of end of the towards podcast uh, at the same time what I'd really love to do is to get into a little bit more of your hosting because everyone that's listening is probably thinking wow like this guy one you sound great two you know you got good humor um, and that we've got good energy going on you know you are the host of the we do hard things club and I know that one of your goals out there is to be like a, you know a world-renowned host which to me you're already on that well on that path uh, yeah no I, I I believe that I don't think I, I think listening to you that sometimes you don't think that you're you're kind of moving there yet but uh, you know tell us a little bit about that and that kind of dream for you yeah it's it's funny because at a certain point within any career I think within any any kind of maturity people start stop looking at themselves and what they can get and they start looking how they can serve others and so I think it's quite common for business owners or for entrepreneurs or for leaders to think about writing a book or becoming, you know, a speaker or going on stage. And, and quite honestly, um, I, I enjoy it and I like the idea of it, but I've always found that I've learned best by just asking, just peppering people with questions. So, for example, my house many years ago needed the uh, electrical changed. And I spent the day with the electrician and I just asked him tons of questions and I watched what he did. And then um, from then forward, I never hired an electrician again because I can just do the work myself. And so there's, there's, there are these visual learners and there's auditory learners, but there's also a group of us who learn just by watching. What, like, what are you doing and what are you saying? And, and, it, and if, you can, if you can ask the right question at the right time, you can, you can get to the heart of the matter and you can push people and you can get to the point and put a really fine point on it. And so I realized looking back that when I would help people with brand strategy or when I was leading parts of my company, I was just doing that. I was, I was trying to figure out what it was that they were trying to accomplish, even though they were living in a very vague land. And for anyone who's a business coach, they know exactly what I'm talking about, that as entrepreneurs, we have these kind of ideas of kind of where we're going, but they're certainly not crystallized and they're not to the point. And so I spent years just like, interviewing people and interviewing people and interviewing people and then i would per, i'd be the person to you know i'd be working with an engineering firm and we would do a breakdown on why their health and safety measures are better than you know their competition so they should earn these um, giant grants or, or contracts and so suddenly i'd have to learn about you know engineering and i'd have to learn about health and safety and i have to think about what their target audience watching this would want in an rfp process and just like all this business stuff and I'd be the one asking the people questions to get the answers we need to get so that way we can create the positioning on like I say this all to say is that I was always heading this direction. And when it became time, when I felt like it was time for me to start to give and start to share learnings, I realized that I don't think I have an original thought. 
But what I really love doing is pulling stuff out of others and helping them shine. And I became good at it. I became good at it because I can understand what I think the audience might want. I'm, I don't know if it's bold or stupid or confident, but I don't mind asking people uncomfortable questions and putting them on the spot and asking them a second or third time if I feel like they're sidestepping it uh, or fourth and fifth time and saying like, I'm sorry, you did not answer my question um, or, or asking, why aren't you answering my question? Uh, I have a natural curiosity, which, which certainly helps. But, but more than that, um, I love, I love being able to connect with people who've done remarkable things and try and distill the essence of not only who they are, but also try to understand why they've done the things they've done in that moment, how did it feel? What did you learn? What did you do next? What mistakes did you make? Exactly like the type of conversation we're having today. Um, I love doing that. And, and I feel like my greatest gift is actually being able to connect the audience to the person who, who has actually done that. I am the channel or the medium or, or the person who can kind of watch how, how the reaction is rippling across the audience or get a sense of what we need to say in this moment to really hit the point home or where we might need, I just did a break there, just to hit that point home, but where we might need a, a break or a pause or extra context because the person is, is, is off on the deep end and I don't even know what you're talking about. So the audience certainly doesn't. And so that whole game, I love playing. I love, I love the like rat-a-tat-tat dance of it. I love that it's all live and happening in the moment. Uh, and I realized looking back that almost every experience I've had in my professional career and, and even my hobbies has kind of taken me to this moment and, and in this direction. And so why not? Why not? Absolutely. And, and something that you, it seems that you are pretty comfortable in doing because of all those years that you've had to talk to so many, but also there's that curiosity, isn't it? And maybe it comes back to that kind of engineer's mindset that you're curious. You're like, like, and, and I call it emotioneering, like maybe that's, maybe you're, you're kind of channeling that a little bit, like in a way you're, you're kind of picking the person apart to find out how it got put together, like and and I see that's 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 what I love about what I do when I, I work with people, when I work with companies, when I work with, you know, even in, in when I'm hosting you, that's so true. Like it's the curiosity of how does how does this work? Where how do they make those decisions? Where did that go? What's yeah. going on? I love that, well, Mark. The the last thing that I that that I've that I would say has really helped me though as well is um it helps me and it hurts me. It helps me in the way that um, I'm very open and I'm very vulnerable because honestly, most of the time, I feel like no one's listening. And every time that someone in real life is like, oh, I heard that podcast, I get this sinking feeling because I'm like, oh my goodness, what did I say and what did I share? But but it, there's something really nice about feeling like you can just be yourself and talk um, because when you're smaller, and, and let, let's be honest, like, you know, I started my podcast, this podcast a year ago, I've been podcasting for five or six years, but I'm not, I, I don't have 6 million followers. I don't, I don't put something out and then have people do commentary, ripping it apart. Like I, I, I'm not there. And so, so being free and comfortable to share my experiences, um, is something that just, I don't mind doing. And so that helps, it comes naturally to me. And the other thing is, um, 
there's this old saying that if you want to know what someone's working through or have just recently worked through, look at the last book they wrote. Because the book comes on the other side of, of the author working through those things. And every interview that I give, the people we select, why we select them, the questions I ask in that moment, it's just a reflection of what I'm working through at the time. And so, uh, and, and so by leading through being willing to be vulnerable and open with almost everyone in my life, my team, my clients, the people who listen to the podcast, uh, and also being able to recognize that um, <laughs> you've just caught me losing my thought in real time. Uh, what was my second point, Melissa? Your second point was that you're amazing and that you really <laughs> love it. No, I don't know. I was so engrossed in the, in the whole thought of, of you talking about, I, I, I was actually, I was oh, also in my head through, a little yeah, bit. Working through things in real time. That's it. Yeah. The, 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 the ability to, to take, you know, Evan Carmichael was the one who gave me the advice. He said, Mark, stop. Like I used to show up as a host, as a surrogate for my audience. And he said, Stop doing that. Like, stop asking questions that aren't real questions for you. Stop, stop assuming that your audience wants to know these three value points. And so you have that kind of three value point conversation. Like, ask the questions that mean something to you. Now, I went too far with that. And I got to the point where it was so, like, inside that there was, like, no context. There was no on-ramps. People didn't really understand what we were talking about because it was just so us. They were watching me have a conversation with someone else. But I found the middle place and we've come back. And so being able to be vulnerable and be yourself. And then secondly, use whatever you are working on to work through what you're working through. Those two things will serve you. That's so good. Like, I feel like I've been served by you answering that question for me. Like, I feel like as a host, I needed to hear that as well. But then maybe that's uh, maybe that's your good positioning. No, I, <laughs> it, in all honesty, Mark, I'm, I also went in my head a little bit when you were talking because I was wondering, you know, you, you, I was thinking about what you said about the vulnerability side and that I'm also and I again, I think that's why I gravitated towards you. I'm also this honest. I will be open but I don't know which part of the journey someone listened to. Like the point is it's out of context, right? We could have a conversation right now. And if someone listens to a part of a podcast and where I'm talking about, I don't know, the fact that I was bullied or, or something like this, like they're hearing that out of context of the whole life journey. Like, it, but when you've got a book or you've got something, you kind of, it's in context, right? And it's there. And, and you're right. It's interesting because I also sometimes feel like that. I feel like, oh my gosh, like, it impacted somebody or somebody listened. That's great. But then I do sometimes think, oh, what, what was I actually talking about on that one? But but what I've also loved to enjoy is that sometimes I drop back in on myself, having a conversation with someone. And I think, oh, my gosh, that was like a magical moment. Like, so so let me let me talk to you about that, like the magical moments within interviews like I I know that you've recently interviewed like you've had Nick Bradley on the show you've had Les Brown you've had there's been so many people that you've you've connected with but like what has been like what was a magical moment for you and I know they're all going to be unique so as a host you don't want to kind of pinpoint but like what was a magical moment well so the, the, the first, I, I have to say the first thing is I decided to launch this format of podcast. We do hard things. It's my, it's my third podcast, but uh, I wanted to do it for about six months before I kicked off. And I started doing these, um, like these beta recordings, 
the first recording I did was with my COO and 12 minutes in, I, I shut it off. Cause I was like, Oh, this is getting way too serious. No, we got to, Ooh, I can't ask those questions. Um, because it like, it got, it was unlistenable. It was so dark and serious. Uh, and then I did a few betas, but I, I brought on a booking agent, um, to help me. And I was watching on Amazon prime, uh, the eco challenge, Mark Burnett's eco challenge, which was uh, this crazy journey where people go like 600 kilometers on by foot without sleep. And it's like the world's hardest race. And I'm watching this show and there's an American woman named Sonia Wick, who's uh, who's part of an American team. And as I'm watching towards the end of the series, like she 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 really starts to struggle and she really starts to work through some things. And And what she was saying was just so within my heart for like, that's that's what I want. We do hard things to be about. And so I said, Hey, booking agent, can you get Sonia Wick? And then like three days later, he's like, oh, you're interviewing her next Monday. And I was here in my office, my office in my basement of my house. My, my laundry room is outside. My wife was doing laundry at the time. And I ran out and I was like, I'm having Sonia Wick on the podcast. And it was this moment of excitement and exhilaration and, and, and then fear and all of those things. But it was because um, it, it wasn't just a, a friend. It wasn't a network. It was, it was the first time where it was like, I saw someone do something amazing. And then we went out and booked her. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that I've, I've had that magic a, a few times. Um, and it's always really exciting. Most recently, uh, I had Charlie Borman on the podcast, uh, who is from the UK as well. But you guys might know him as Ewan McGregor's friend, because for the last 20 years, he's been riding around the world on motorcycles with Ewan McGregor. Wow. And um, and he's the son of um, of uh, John Borman, who is a legendary UK film director who directed like Deliverance and Excalibur in the 80s and all these things. Um, anyway, he's this awesome guy, but but he he's not within like the business world. He's not within thought leadership. He's not within the typical paths that we would take to be able to book someone. And I was like, I've loved Charlie Borman for like 15, 16, 17 years. In fact, when I started my company uh, in 20, 2007, there were afternoons where I didn't have much to do and I would have his TV show on TV, like running in the background while I was busy doing stuff. Like that's, that's how much for the last, like almost two decades, his stuff has been a part of my life. And so being able to bring him on for me is like so exciting and so much fun. Um, and, and, and so it's those kind of moments speaking with Anthony trucks, being able to connect with Nick Bradley, who is someone who, uh, who honestly, if you went back to when I interviewed him, I couldn't find anything about the man. Like I didn't know that much about him. Um, but we become fast friends. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, there's, there's lessons in the moments. Um, there's these amazing conversations that I've been able to have and they all feel very precious to me. Each one does. Uh, and then there's the opportunity where I can, I can connect with someone who has been a hero of mine and I cannot believe in real time that I'm speaking to this person. <laughs> And because I'm the host, I get to direct this anywhere I want. Imagine yeah, that's awesome so nice. That you saying that about me, Mark? No, I'm really joking. <laughs> no, exactly. but like, you, it's it's so true. Like that, and that's amazing. Like to that story, like you said, she was doing the laundry, and you're like, oh my gosh, like I booked this person. Or and it, it is, it's all those little moments and all the different people and the things that come out that you don't you don't know. Like there's so many things that you said today that I'm like wow like I I really connect with that like that's it there have been some absolutely magical can, moments in this can, can I share one more that happened quite recently in October I was uh in the U.S. 
and I was hosting um, a conference. It was a three-day conference in North Carolina, and I hosted the panels. Now, everybody who was on the panels are all people that I've that I've had on the podcast, or I kind of know, or I know people who know them. But on day three, on day three, Lisa and Tom Billu were keynoting, and. For those who are listening, if, if you know Tom Bilyeu, he, he started Quest Energy uh, with Lisa and another partner, and then they started um, then, then they started Impact Theory after they exited out of um, out of Quest. Um, but but I'm I'm hosting a panel that day with them. I get to put them on the spot and ask anything that I want. But before that, I was emceeing, so I'm introducing them for their keynotes. And there's this moment where I'm like talking to them, and when I say something, they 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 respond like like just like what we're doing now and again it was one of these moments where I'm like I have admired Tom uh, I love Lisa uh, I've 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 deep dived on their stuff for years and so it's super easy for me to host with them because I just know them so well but yeah there's these moments where whether you're in business it's happened to me in business as well we've worked with NBA players and I'm standing on a court beside like NBA champions and I'm thinking what is going on now. Um, we've shot television commercials with national airlines where we need a 737 in a hangar, uh, for the whole day. And you, you literally drive to the airport and you walk past security and there's a, like an empty 737 sitting in a hangar and the team goes, what do you want to do with this? And you're like, well, can we pull the seats? Like, like I've had these moments and I think we all do in business where if you don't take a little Kodak moment of it, if you don't take a snapshot of how awesome it is, you will easily forget it. But to me, like, my goodness, that that's what makes life more fun and more magical. Absolutely. And on that note, Mark, I'm definitely going to take a screenshot. I've got the recording. <laughs> I'm going to be able to remember this moment for a long time. It has been an absolute pleasure to interview. Please tell people where they can reach you, where they can, you know, connect with you. What's going on? Yeah, well, the best place to find our content would be on YouTube. Uh, that my channel is Mark Drager. Uh, you could also Google uh, We Do Hard Things with Mark Drager, uh, which is great. Or you can connect with me one-on-one -on, -one on Instagram. And I have the very fancy handle, Mark Drager as well. <laughs> and you might see him. You might see him on Clubhouse. He's dropped off the radar for a, a, a little while, but uh, I'm sure you'll be back, right, Mark? I will always be there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on here. Oh, thank you. I've had listeners. I know you listen because you love this show, but this was an amazing conversation. So I just have to put that on camera. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that on my website next week. No, I'm joking. Have, have an amazing rest of your day, guys. Thanks for listening. Ciao for now. Thanks for listening to the Emotioneering podcast with me, Melissa Curran, today. It's been great. Remember to subscribe to Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube or all three. You can also come to the website modernmindgroup.com where you can subscribe there, stay in contact and let us know what you really think. Give us the feedback. This is going to get better by knowing what you think. Uh, has this given you food for thought? Has it helped you change something? What has it inspired? Let us know because that's why we're doing it. It's all about the people, people, people. <laughs> Have a great day and ciao for now.